If you're visiting this morning, normally we preach through a book of the Bible, section by section, but this week we're looking at the whole book of Judges. Judges comes before Ruth in our Bibles, uh, and Hugh will be preaching on the book of Ruth from next week. Uh, please pray for him as he prepares. <laughs> uh, amen. And now, because Ruth is set in the time of the judges, uh, our elders thought it would be a good idea to do a, a one-shot sermon uh, with this book to help us consider that context as well as the message of the book of Judges. And so before I dive uh, into that, before we, we get to that and uh, begin to uh, expound that book, uh, I just want to say that uh, personally, I found the process of preparing this sermon to be really encouraging and really fruitful. So rather than just you know, taking a passage and really seeking to analyze that, ask the questions of it, really seek to understand it well, uh, this time in my preparation, I read through the book of Judges a couple of times and uh, sought to really try and notice its, its meta-narrative, its big structure and all of those kinds of things. Uh, and it's been personally very encouraging and fruitful. Um, a few weeks ago, I recommended study Bibles to us all, and a pastor friend of mine who listened to that sermon told me that he wasn't particularly stoked about that recommendation, uh, and that's because he likes to encourage his congregation to go to Scripture itself and to hear it on its own terms. Uh, so he, he doesn't really like study Bibles on that front, so another pastor friend said, well, you know what to get him for Christmas then. <laughs> Uh, buy him a study Bible just to, just to rile him up. Um, now, look, I, I, think it's, I think it's a valid point that he made, and I agree uh, that it, that should be our first step. When we go to the Word, um, we want to seek to understand it on its own terms. Don't just go straight to the study Bible notes, uh, even though they are really good resources to go to if, um, at some point. So I, I wanted to say that because I, I hope to encourage you, encourage all of us, um, especially if you find the study of Scripture something to be difficult and, and challenging. Uh, let me just encourage you, when you put the time in and the effort into it, the Holy Spirit really does work through His Word. Uh, and so building those muscles of engaging with God's Word and seeking to understand it, let me encourage us all to really uh, uh, seek to build those and to do that well. Um, yeah, use the other resources by all means, study Bible notes, commentaries, whatever that, that might be, but wrestle with the text first. Wrestle with it yourself. When you come across something, you think, why is that there? What, what does that even mean? Seek to try and understand from the, from the context itself. And that's something that happened for me as I did that in Judges. There were times, you know, um, if you've read the book of Judges, you'll know that there are some pretty difficult and really tricky uh, uh, passages and, and narratives in the story. And I found that as I read through it, as I sought to understand it, under, sought to understand what the book itself was saying, I came to realize, oh, wow, no, that's, that's what's going on here. That's what this is trying to say. Um, and as we, as we do that, God works through His Word. So let me encourage you to, um, yeah, to really uh, keep doing that with Scripture. So as we prepare to hear the book of Judges, um, you might have noticed the question on the screen as you were coming in to get us thinking was, uh, what do you have eyes for? Well, it was, but no, we didn't do that. The eyes have it is the title of the sermon. The question was um, going to be, but wasn't. What do you have eyes for? Um, there is an expression that we often use to talk about things or people we love that, that goes, you know, I only have eyes for... Uh, and often that's romantic. There's an old song, I only have eyes for you. Um, you know, so I only have eyes for my wife, meaning, you know, I, I only have love for them. And so the question we want to ask as we come to the book of Judges is, who or what do we have eyes for? Let me pray for us as we uh, prepare our hearts and our minds. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are holy as we have just sung, holy, perfect, glorious, wonderful, righteous, all these words, Lord, which can only, in, in some uh, analogous way, capture who you are. Lord, we, we stand in awe before you. And Father, oftentimes we, we don't, as we should in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to see you as you truly are. Pray that you would, the one who, who sees all things, the one who sees the hearts of all people, 
Father, would you open our eyes to see you and to treasure you, to love you above all things. Father, may may we have only eyes for you. And Lord, would you please fix our eyes on you, on our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we um, contemplate and consider the book of Judges this morning, may we see Christ, may we see our great King, and may we love Him. We pray this in His name. Amen. Well, Paige is now going to come and give us a reading, not from the book of Judges, but from Joshua, which is the book immediately before Judges, and give us a little bit of context, and I'll explain to you why uh, she's reading that in the sermon. Thank you, Paige. Thank you for not asking me to read the whole book of Judges. (laughs) All right, so we're in Joshua 24, starting in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land, Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Who do you have eyes for? Well, if you're a Christian this morning, then imagine you would want to say, Jesus. When are you most likely to take your eyes off Jesus and place them on something else? Perhaps it's when uh, the things that you've believed about him for so long start to make less and less sense in the light of what other people around you say about him. Perhaps it's when you look at the lives of your peers who have eyes only for the desires of their own hearts and you wonder if you're missing out. Perhaps it's when you look at him and you don't feel a single ounce of joy or contentment. Well, in life, there are really only two options. You can look at Jesus and seek what is pleasing in his sight. Or you can look at all the other false gods and options around and seek to do what is pleasing in your own 
sides. Which will it be? That is essentially the question that faces us in the book of Judges this morning. Now, the book is made up of three sections, which will make up the first three headings of my sermon, uh, with a fourth to conclude it. And those are, number one, disobedience from verse, chapter 1, verse 1, through to verse 6 of chapter 3. Deliverance from verse 7 of chapter 3 through to verse 31 of chapter 16. And deterioration from 17, 1 to 21, 25. And then deliverer, based mostly on the last verse. Let me encourage us to have our Bibles open and ready, especially as we move through the book at a faster pace than usual. Let's begin with our first heading, disobedience. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Judges, let me give you a brief history of uh, the context of Judges first. Now, kids, who can tell me, who knows this song? Ready? Father, Father, Anyone know that one? Who is he? What's his name? Father Abraham. That's the one. Father Abraham. Now, the reason we sing that song is because the particular story of Israel, it begins with Abraham. He is the father. He was a man from Ur, uh, whom God visited and called out of his land. God promised to make him into a great nation, saying that uh, from him all peoples of the earth would be blessed. And so we read about his story in the book of Genesis. Uh, When he and his wife, does anyone know his wife's name? Sarah, that's right. When he and his wife Sarah were very old, God spoke to both of them that even though Sarah was barren, she'd been unable to have children, and certainly she seemed too old at this point to have children God told them she would conceive and bear a child, and his name would be Isaac. Isn't it amazing that we have a Sarah who gave birth to an Isaac in our church? Fast forward a few centuries, and the people of Israel have grown to become a rather large group of people, and many generations later, they are slaves in Egypt. And so we read in the book of Exodus about how God raises up Moses to free them from slavery and to lead them out of Egypt and across the wilderness and into the land God promised to them. Except Moses, he actually mucks up and gets all the way to the border of the promised land and then he dies without entering it. And so we read in the book of Joshua about how Joshua takes over from Moses and he leads the people into the promised land to uh, take that which God has promised to them. And they go in and they fight battles and they wipe out people groups in Canaan. As we heard earlier, the book of Judges finishes with him charging the people of Israel to love the Lord and to put away their idols. But Joshua is skeptical about their ability to do this. And for good reason, all the way along in their history, in, the, in those books of, of Genesis and Exodus, they've shown how quick they are to turn their backs on God as soon as things get tough. But they commit themselves to it. They say, no, we will, we will love the Lord. We will commit to Him. And Joshua renews the covenant between them and the Lord. And towards the end of the book, in verse 31, we read, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. And Joshua ends with him dying. And so we come to the beginning of the book of Judges, which picks up where Joshua left off. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So the book opens with Israel asking the Lord what their next move in conquering the promised land is. You see, they hadn't finished yet. They hadn't finished clearing it out as the Lord told them to do. And so chapter 1 tells the story of how they did this. Different tribes conquering and destroying different cities and peoples. Now, this is a confronting thing for us to hear which I don't have time to go into right now, though you're welcome to ask at question time or afterwards. But for now, it's important to know and important to acknowledge that they were doing this because this is what they were supposed to do. This is what God commanded them to do when they went into the promised land. 
Look at the conditions of the covenants that God made with Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let me just read that to you. It's on the screen as well. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. There's the reason. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in their pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Let me encourage you, if you uh, go away and do some of your own reading and study of the book of Judges, this is such an, an important background passage. So much of what God says there you see reflected and repeated in the book of Judges. You see, the purpose of Israel completely wiping out and not intermarrying, not making a covenant with the Canaanite peoples was so that they would remain holy to the Lord. They were meant to be set apart for him. And sadly, God has proven right, as we have just read, as to what would happen if they did not follow through on this destruction. And so in Judges 1, we see a list from verses 27 to 36 of the ways that various tribes of Israel failed to do just that. Look at the repetition of the descriptions. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants And they did not drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of of Kitron. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. They did not do it. They disobeyed the Lord. So often we read these and roll our eyes and we groan and say, again, when will these Israelites learn their lesson? But brother, sister, what evils and idols have you not yet driven out of your own land? What godless influences or influencers continue to hold sway over your devotion to the Lord? Perhaps we can relate to their disobedience more than we realize. Well, Israel had been on a decades-long journey from slavery in Egypt to arriving in the promised land. And having experienced that kind of life for generations and arriving in Canaan to see a prosperous land and a prosperous people worshipping a foreign god who seemed to have given them prosperity in their farming, you think that surely must have played on their minds. Perhaps they thought, well, you know, God, we have no farming experience. We've been wandering around in the wilderness for decades you know, it makes sense to keep the people who know how to farm, right? I mean, surely, surely God can see the logic in that. They can teach us how to do this. We, you know, we can do it really well. How often our obedience to God is derailed by what seems more sensible in our eyes. One of the most tragic things about this opening chapter is how quickly Israel responds to God's goodness, to his blessing, to his fulfillment of his promises to them with sinful disobedience. Everything God has promised to them, he has brought it about. They're not roaming around in the wilderness anymore. They're not sitting, uh, wishing that they were, had pots of meat that they could sit around in Egypt. And God's not only proven himself to be trustworthy, but he's proven himself to be good. And this is how they respond. It's not surprising that this is what we read at the beginning of chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up 
from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. God reminds his people of what he has done for them, how he brought them up out of Egypt. And that's something that becomes a a, a thing that God reminds them of a few times in this book. God saved them from slavery. He provided them and led them to the promised land. And yet, that is not enough to secure their obedience. In verse 10, the chapter rewinds a little to put this next section in its place in the timeline of after Joshua. And it shows us how it is in the very next generation after Joshua that they completely forget about him. And this next section gives us the key to the book. It establishes a cycle that we see over and over again. Let's read from verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the, the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of their judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, And were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. There's four stages to this cycle, which we see in chapter 2 and repeated throughout the book. The Israelites disobey. God's wrath is poured out on them in, form, in the form of nations defeating and ruling them, plundering them. And then they cry out to God in repentance. And then God raises up a judge to save them. It's not a perfect circle, but it shows you this, the cycle. And it repeats over and over but the interesting thing is that it's actually, you, know, you notice in that title I've said cycle slash spiral because it's not so much a cycle that, yes, that certainly happens, but it's more of a spiral because as you read the book of Judges and keep going, they don't just go round and round, but they go round and round and get worse and worse as the book goes on. Each, each generation gets worse, more corrupt than their fathers, as verse 19 says. And that brings us to our second heading and our second section, the largest of the book, Deliverance. Kids, let me ask you a question. When you hear the word judge, tell me, what comes to mind for you? Oh, pointing to that guy. Maybe one day he'll be a judge, working currently as a lawyer. I think he's got the wig, actually. Does he have the gavel, though? You know what I mean? 
you know, you know what we're talking about? The judge with the wig and the gavel, the guy who sits in the court. Guilty as charged, right? That's what we often think about, right? When we think of judges. Now, in the book of Judges, uh, the judges that God raises up, they really do some judging. And so it is a, it's a somewhat appropriate title, but it doesn't fully capture what they do. You see, the judges were people who were raised up by the Lord to save and to free the people of Israel from whichever Canaanite people were ruling over them at that time. They were the leaders of the nation. And so these judges, they came from various tribes in Israel, and we hear about about 12 of them in this book. And that is probably an intentionally chosen number. Speaking of ESV study Bibles, took this chart from there. The 12 judges uh, showing the different people groups that uh, came and um, uh, plundered them and harassed them. It's important to recognize that the book of Judges is not just a book of history. Its primary purpose uh, is not to just tell us the facts of what happened. It is to tell us how Israel ended up in the situation that it was in by the end of this period of time and to give you the reasons why. In that sense, it's it's a bit more like a prophetic book in that it is explaining the history of Israel and the reasons why they they ended up in the situation they were in. After all, there there weren't only 12 judges. Uh, Eli and Samuel, amongst others, are both described as judging Israel in 1 Samuel. And so when we realize this, that this is the purpose of the book of Judges, we see why some of, of the judges in the book that, we, that are described have long sections and long stories about them, whereas some judges we only get, you know, a mere sentence or two. And so it's important to, to keep that in our minds as we read through the book of Judges. Well, let's dive into this section. So the cycle of Israel's disobedience begins. Verse 7 of chapter 3 is an all too familiar marker of what happens when one of the good judges dies. The people of Israel do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. The people sin and they worship false gods and God's wrath burns against them because of the evil they do in His sight. And they cry out to God and He raises up a deliverer to save them. And there is peace and there is rest in the land for a period of time until Israel does what is evil in the eyes of God again. And so the first four judges, well, they actually do quite well. We get a paragraph of Othniel and his deliverance of the Israelites from the Mesopotamian king. We hear about Ehud who killed Eglon, the fat Moabite king. One of my favorite funny stories. Well, I guess it's kind of funny, a little bit. Yeah. And then we get one verse on Shamgar, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, which is like a stick with a little pointy thing on the end of it. And then there's Deborah and Barak. After each, of, uh, the, uh, after each one uh, of these judges being raised to save the nation, Israel enjoyed a period of rest and peace. But in that last one with Deborah and Barak, a slight crack starts to appear in the cycle. And chapter 4 tells us the story of how Barak lacked his own courage and faith in the Lord to deliver Israel himself. And chapter 5 is their big song of victory and praise to God. And so the cycle we've seen with these first four judges, but now even Barak, the judge, is, is showing signs of a lack of trust and of faith in God makes you wonder, as you read it, how long will God be patient? How long could this people remember the Lord and be obedient to Him? How long is that going to last? Perhaps things are going to get worse. Well, chapter 6 opens with the same familiar first part of the cycle. So the Lord, uh, of the Lord, and so the Lord in His wrath gives them over to the people of Midian. And this time he also sends them a prophet to remind them of their history, of all the Lord has done for them in verses 8 to 10 of chapter 6. Let me read. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. 
You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Well, we know what to expect now, don't we, at this point? They've disobeyed. God's wrath has been poured out. And now he will raise up a judge to deliver them. And so we're introduced to Gideon in verse 11. And it's ironic to me that the angel of the Lord calls him a mighty man of valor. Kids, does anyone know what valor means? It's a bit of an old-fashioned word. Anyone? Tricky one. Adults? Does anyone have the valor to tell me what the word means? Strength? Not quite. Bravery. Courage. That's right. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's ironic that the angel of the Lord calls Gideon a man of valor, and yet it doesn't take long for Gideon to, to be telling the angel about how weak he is, and then he asks him for a sign to prove that what the angel of the Lord has just told him will come true. And you see more signs of his very lack of valor in verse 27. He was too afraid. And now, of course, Gideon does not lack this completely. He confronts the men of his town by destroying the altar of Baal and, and cutting down the Asherah idols. And he famously leads a group of only 300 men to defeat thousands of Midianites. But perhaps the biggest indicator of his wavering faith, of his lack of valor, is in his putting out of the fleece. Twice. I'm not sure what you've been uh, told about Gideon and his fleece, but in my experience, whenever I heard about it, this was presented as a positive thing. You know, if you're uh, not sure about something you should do, if you're wondering about whether God is leading you in a particular direction, then you should ask God to give you some kind of confirmation. Put out the fleece. God's okay with that. Well, the problem is that Gideon is so clearly not acting in faith as he does this. Just as Jesus would quote in his testing by Satan in Matthew 4, Deuteronomy 6, 16 is clear. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. The Israelites knew that they were not supposed to test the Lord their God, especially if he had already spoken something to them. And Gideon knows that he is doing exactly this. That's why he introduces his request in verse 39 this way. Let not your anger burn against me. Why else would he say this? You don't say that when you, when you know that the thing you're going to ask is going to be received with, with great joy. No, he knows that God has told him what he will do and what Gideon must do. God's already revealed himself to him. He already knows for sure that God is speaking. And yet Gideon wants more proof. Now, mind you, I'm, I'm not suggesting that I would do any better. But if there is one thing I want you to take away from this, it's that the so-called putting out of the fleece method that some Christians advocate for to try and discern God's will is definitely not something that Judges chapter 6 is endorsing. Brothers and sisters, we must not test God this way. Now, yes, God might graciously answer your prayer for more proof or some sense of peace in a decision in an extraordinary way. But he has already revealed to you everything you need. The emphasis there is on need to live a life of godliness that is faithful and obedient to him. Right here in his word. In order for God to be glorified and to prevent Israel from boasting in their greatness, he uses Gideon to lead 300 men to defeat hordes of Midianites. And it's a great victory. But before the story of Gideon finishes, as the rest do, with Midian conquered and the land having rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon, we see the most tragic chapter in his life. Even though Gideon rightly told the people of Israel that he would not rule over them, they asked him to, be, to, to rule over them. He said, no, the Lord will rule. Sadly, by the end of the chapter, he has created an ephod which becomes an idol 
and a snare to his family. With each chapter of the Judges, the cycle becomes more of a spiral. The people are descending into worse and worse sin. Brothers and sisters, let that be a warning to us. Whether it is in times of great difficulty or whether it is us reaping the consequences of our sin, or if it is God's providential hands testing us and refining our faith like silver. Don't let the consequences of your sin become so great that it takes a catastrophe to turn to Him. Do it in times of peace, in times of rest, so that you are not tempted away in your ease. When God provides blessing, do not let that be an excuse to sit on your laurels. Well, moving on to chapter 9, it is all about Gideon's son, Abimelech, who basically seizes the leadership of Israel by turning the people against his brothers. It's a brutal tale of great sin and of eventually God's judgment. And it's an interesting insertion at this point in the story because it doesn't go by the usual formula. Abimelech is not the judge that God raises up to rescue Israel from other Canaanites. He just seizes power for himself. And once again, another indicator that things are falling apart even further. Well, after him, we have a few sentences on just a couple of judges named Tola and Jair. And then the cycle begins again. But this time, there is a little bit more sting in God's words. Let's read from verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? from the Ammonites and from the Philistines. The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Can you hear the sarcasm and the pain in God's words as he speaks to his people who have time and time again responded to his salvation and his blessing and deliverance with sinful disobedience? And running to other gods, he sounds like a jilted husband. And that's basically what he is. If you're wondering what God's patience looks like, this book gives you an amazing picture. You know, we say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But that's not how God operates. Firstly, you can't fool him. But more importantly, he is a God who has infinite patience for those who truly turn and seek him. And perhaps you think you've mucked up your life and run away from God and disobeyed him too many times. Well, friend, know that he is always ready and willing to forgive. The Bible is one big, long love story about how God patiently waits for his people to come to him. If you don't know Jesus this morning, he invites you to be part of that story. Well, this time, it is the Ammonites who bring about God's judgment. And the next judge to lead Israel is Jephthah. But the fascinating thing about Jephthah is that he doesn't get the usual introduction that the Lord, you know, raised him up. Instead, we hear about how he is the son of a prostitute and he's surrounded by worthless fellows. Instead of God raising him up, this time it is the people 
who appoint Jephthah as their head. And then another tragic story is told. God gives Israel victory to him and to them. And before their next battle, Jephthah makes a rash vow. He says, if you deliver me, I will do this. And because we have kids in today, I won't talk about it. And I'll leave the parents to decide whether you'd like to share that. But at the very least, what we need to say is that this is once again an example of how Israel is just spiraling further and further down. Jephthah has a bit of a civil war with Ephraim, and then his chapter finishes. And then we have another quick, brief interjection of three more uh, judges, Ibzan, Elon, not Musk, and Abdon, all from different areas in Israel. Now, Abdon, I don't know if you've been keeping count. Has anyone been keeping count? Do you know how many judges we've seen so far? No? Kids? No? I should have told you at the beginning. Abdon is judge number 11. Do you remember how many judges there are in total in this book? Yeah? How many? 12. That's right. One more to go. And at this stage of the book, we have spiraled so far down that things really are not looking great for the people of Israel. And we ask the question, could someone stop that slide? Can God raise up a judge that will invert that spiral and and send Israel back upwards? Well, let's read the first first seven verses of chapter 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah? And how they found out that she would conceive and bear a son despite having been barren and not being able to have children? As an Israelite reading this, the parallel is just unmistakable. It's so strikingly similar to that original promise to Abraham and Sarah. At this point, with the nation spiraling out of control, what seems like the bottom of the barrel, maybe, maybe this son, maybe this judge, the 12th judge, will be the one who saves Israel and bring about the Abrahamic promise. Perhaps he would lead Israel to great faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. He would, after all, be a Nazarite, which, as we know from number six, means a razor won't touch his head, he won't go near a dead body or strong drink, and he will be set apart as holy to the Lord. This really could be a new chapter in the story of Israel and its judges. The story of Samson's birth, it just it ends with such great hope. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Can you feel the anticipation, the expectation, the hope that perhaps he will arrest the slide? It's a shame the story doesn't end there. Kids, have you ever had really high hopes for something great and then seeing them come crashing down. Do you know that feeling? 
Yeah. You see, the higher the expectation, the harder and the more painful the fall when it all collapses. After reading this whole story and seeing how dire the situation was in Israel and then glimpsing that maybe it's because God was going to do something great in Samson to finally fulfill the purpose. This is the first thing we read about Samson. Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Samson's first recorded action is that he wants to marry one of the Philistines, a foreign people's, one of the very people that God forbade the Israelites to marry. And why? As he says in verse 3, because she is right in his eyes. So far, what we've seen is that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But here is the first time where doing evil in the eyes of the Lord is expressed as doing what is right in his eyes. And that's a theme that will continue on throughout the rest of the book. We'll see that a bit later. The next four chapters tell of some of Samson's life events. Kids, who who can tell me some of the things that Samson did? Anyone know? Yeah? Yeah? He, sorry, pushed down the pillars. That's right. At the end of his life, that's what he did. Anything else? Yeah? Yeah, that's right. He carried the gate up to the top of the hill, a story that I still don't really understand at this point. Yes? Sorry? He broke, yeah, he broke free from the the ropes. That's right. Yeah. That's it. So many feats of strength that Samson did. He he killed a lion with his bare hands. He did a whole bunch of these things. But he also did some things that that were really not great. You know, he married a Philistine woman, then he took revenge on the Philistine people. He tied some foxtails together and set them off and set alight all their fields. We hear about uh, many of these events in Samson's life. And then, of course, when his first wife dies, he ends up being in another relationship with a woman named Delilah, which, you know, you'd think from his first marriage that he would learn from that. He learned to be suspicious of women claiming that uh, if he loved them, that he would tell them a secret which he knows is going to end badly for him. It's hard to imagine how you can't learn from that. Yet he doesn't. And they, both, both his first wife and Delilah, they say, if you really loved me, you would tell me this, which is going to be really bad for you. This is why love must be defined God's way in order for it to be real love. But Samson doesn't learn from his sin and his consequences, and he tells Delilah the secret of his strength. Of course, his hair is cut, and it completes that action completes his breaking of all the Nazarite vows that he was supposed to keep. And the Philistines gouge out his eyes. There is perhaps some irony here, given that for most of his life, he did what was right in his own eyes. And now they have been taken away from him. Brothers and sisters, it is, is it not better to have your eye cut out to keep it from sinning than to have your whole body thrown into hell. Those words on the lips of Jesus in Matthew 5, 29 are not literal instructions. Otherwise, all of us would have only one eye and one hand. But they are so relevant to us today. Samson's biggest snare, this kind of immorality with women, is just as big an issue in our world today as it was then. Perhaps even bigger today. And for us, it is perhaps even more an issue of the eyes than ever. These days, our eyes may feast on sin without our bodies even going there. Guard your eyes, brothers and sisters, and starve those lusts and sinful indulgences by lifting your eyes instead to the Lord. 
Guard your eyes. Don't convince yourself that a fleeting glance or a momentary enjoyment of the eyes is harmless to your soul. Well, at the end of his life, Samson calls out to God and God uh, strengthens him one final time, killing more Philistines in his death than he did in his entire life. And notice how this time at the conclusion, it's not the same as it is with the other judges. This time there's no peace, there's no rest in the land. This time the Philistines have not been fully defeated. Instead, we simply read that Samson judged Israel 20 years, and that's it. Things are not as they ought to be. The spiral has gotten so bad that it doesn't even finally resolve at the end of the life of this last judge. What are we to make of this? After all, the book of Hebrews names each of these significant flawed judges that I just talked about as part of the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Are they good or are they bad? I imagine this is one of the reasons why we often get confused in knowing what to do with the judges. If if they were people of faith, we, we think then surely everything they did ought to be imitated. But no, brothers and sisters, this is yet another incredible example of God's mercy in using extremely imperfect people to bring about His good. It's something that you notice right throughout this book. There are times when the people of Israel are clearly doing the wrong thing, and yet God is still sovereign over them. He is still interacting with them. He is still delivering them. And that is still just as true today. It's true of us as His people in his church. Now, there are some differences, right? You know, the people of Israel lived under a different covenant. Churches today, we don't have neighboring people groups going to war against us when we sin. And Paul makes it clear that overseers of God's church must be above reproach. We can't say that God uses flaw people and use that as some kind of loophole to say that a pastor who lives in public unrepentant sin is able to keep leading the church. But it is to say that if God were to only use people who never mess up, then there would only be one option. And that is why the gospel is such good news. Our elders are not perfect men by any stretch of the imagination. But God graciously uses them to lead this church as he does with elders in churches all over the globe. And that's why these flawed judges can be included in the hall of faith. I fully expect them to see them in eternity. But that doesn't mean that everything they did was right. And Judges is very clear about that. It says we seek to know who to imitate, what to imitate, as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So it is with all leaders that we read about in Scripture So it is with all leaders today. Where they reflect Christ, be like them. Where they don't, don't. God used flawed leaders. But as the leaders themselves failed to be obedient to the Lord, so the nation followed suit and went further and further down the spiral, which brings us to our third section, deterioration. Kids, this is a little bit of a tricky question, but does anyone know what happens to something when it deteriorates? It breaks down. That's right. When something deteriorates, which in Darwin is anything you put in the sun, it breaks down. It starts to fall apart. And so from this point onward, from the beginning of chapter 17 through to the end of the book of Judges, there are no more judges. They're not mentioned, at least, not talked about. 
We no longer hear about the cycle. The cycle is not happening anymore. We don't hear about God's wrath. We don't hear about Israel crying out to him in repentance. We don't hear about God raising up a judge to redeem. Instead, the note that we keep hearing throughout these last five chapters is found in verse 6 of chapter 17. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The whole phrase appears here and at the end of the book, but we see the first half of it at the beginning of each of the next chapters, chapters 18 and 19, as a way of of, of alerting us to the fact that this is the problem in Israel at the time. And so this is what we see. The book of Judges finishes with a couple of long narratives across these chapters that demonstrate just how far the nation really has deteriorated in their sin and their disobedience of God. Even though God interacts and works in these last last stories, there is no indicator that he is at all pleased with his people or even ready to save them. And so we have in these two stories, the first is about a man named Micah and his idolatry and the priest that he got to minister to him and his idolatry and how the Danite tribe stole his idols and stole his priests so that they could continue in their idol worship. And then the book finishes with a tragic story about a Levite and his concubine and all that happens as a result. Again, one I won't share. There is nothing good in these final chapters. There is the the heinous sin of the men in Gibeah, which echoes Genesis 19 and the men of Sodom. None of the characters in chapter 19 seem to do anything that is worth imitating. Even the old man who tries to do something honorable by protecting his guest, he does so by offering, offering a horrendous alternative. And all of this results in a massive civil war between the tribe of Benjamin and the rest of Israel, which results in tens of thousands of Israelites dying. And there is this fascinating parallel in verse 18 of chapter 20. As the Israelites ask the Lord the question, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah shall go first. Does that sound familiar? It's almost exactly the same as the opening verses. As we come to the end of the book, we see that the state of Israel has changed so dramatically from that hope and promise of the promised land at the very beginning of the book. They have cycled through sin. They have cycled through God's wrath, repentance and deliverance. But now... Not even that is happening by the end. And instead of fighting the Canaanites, they're fighting each other. Brothers and sisters, let this be a warning to us. Our greatest threat does not come from outside the church. It comes from within. If you're worried about Christians losing the cultural war or our religious freedoms being lost or persecution increasing in our lives, don't be. Or at the very least, don't be as concerned about that as you are about your own faithfulness to the Lord and to our church's faithfulness to the Lord. This is why you'll find warnings against false teachers in almost every New Testament book. Pray that we as members and us as elders would continue to hold fast to the word of truth and stand firm in the gospel. Our final verse summarizes these chapters and really it summarizes the entire book. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people have gotten to such a point of deterioration and deprivation that the description of them sounds a lot like the human race before God flooded the world in Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is what the end of Judges is evoking 
it doesn't get any lower. Judges was likely written during the time of Israel's kingdom or just after its downfall. And you get the sense from this verse that one of the causes of the problem, or at least something that perhaps could have stopped their deterioration, would have been the presence of a godly king. Perhaps, the thought goes, the king would have helped Israel lift their eyes and turn to the Lord in repentance. Perhaps a godly king would have led them in faithful obedience. But as we know from the rest of the Old Testament, especially in the books of Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, that is not true. As with the judges, there were good kings and there were bad kings. But by the end of the kingdom, we are still left wondering how this spiral in the people of Israel is going to be arrested. How is this going to be turned around? What on earth could possibly be done to prevent the deterioration of God's people? How can they be saved from their sin cycle? That brings us to our final heading. The book of Judges ends in a state of despair and wondering. It started with so much promise, so much hope that God's people would be able to turn the ship around and to obey God faithfully. But like a train wreck in slow motion, with every step and with every era of disobedience and unfaithfulness, that hope just drained away. And so we're left asking the question, who will save this people from themselves? When will God raise up a king who will lead them to look at the world, not through their own eyes and what seems right to them, but through his eyes? Friends, we have the incredible privilege of being on the other side of the coming of that king. 1,000 years after the events of the book of Judges concluded, there came a king. But he didn't come as a conqueror of the promised land. He didn't come with great military might or standing out from the crowd. No, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, not to overthrow the Roman Empire and to crown himself as king, but to die and to be raised three days later as king of all kings. Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, the Christ whom all of the Old Testament pointed forward to in anticipation, including the book of Judges, was the king who delivered not just the people of Israel, but all mankind. He was the king who would finally fulfill the promise. His miraculous birth foretold by an angel to a virgin named Mary would bring to mind the same promise that God gave to a wandering Aramean named Abraham in a very similar way. And he would raise expectations and hope. But this time, that hope would not be crushed He was the seed of Abraham who would bring a blessing to the nations and the one who continues to. And he delivered us not from God's wrath and judgment in raids from outside nations, but from the far more pressing problem which lives in us as much as it did in the time of the judges, from our sin and its eternal consequences. You see, you and I have been born in sin and have done what is right in our own eyes. And we continue to. But the good news of the gospel is that when we cry out in recognition of our need to be saved and in repentance of our disobedience and lack of love for the Lord, it is through Jesus' blood that we receive God's salvation from his wrath and judgment. And in so doing, God places his Holy Spirit in us, molding our hearts, transforming our lives so that we desire and strive to be obedient, to desire to burn away our idols, to desire to see and do what is right in his eyes and not in our own.
Friends, what is right in your own eyes might seem good in the moment. But it is treasure that will rot and decay, ultimately leaving you hollow and dissatisfied. Look instead to Christ. Set your eyes and your heart on him. As you do, as you see and love the Savior, seeing his great love and his sacrifice for you, the lusts of your eyes will become increasingly dissatisfying. As you look to Jesus, what is right in your eyes will become increasingly conformed to being what is right in his Look to the King. Let me finish with the author of Hebrews' words after he describes the great hall of faith and the many who have gone before us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, we read the book of Judges and we are left with the question, where is the king who will help us out of our spiral? Who can save us from the way that seems right to us? Father, we confess that We so often, in our own hearts, look at things that seem far better to us than you. God, we're so thankful that you have sent your King, King Jesus, the one on whom we may and ought to feast our eyes. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do that in us. May we lift our eyes to Jesus, to be satisfied in him, to increasingly see this world through your eyes and not through ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.